Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Blake. If you're a guest, really glad you're here. Thanks for choosing to worship with us this morning. And it's good timing because this morning we start a new series on the book of Ruth. We'll be here for four weeks. And let me just encourage you to be reading Ruth uh, on your own in your time in the Word. If you've got a family, during family worship, read Ruth. It is really a marvelous little book. You can read it in 15 minutes or so. Written 3,000 years ago, it is a romance of redemption. It's the classic love story of scripture. So guys, you don't have to watch any chick flicks for a whole month. Southside's got you covered. It's the only book of the Bible with a Gentile woman as the name for the title. It's between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's the eighth book of the Bible. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 208. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one with you. So let's jump in to this Cinderella story called Ruth, and let's read all of chapter 1 together. Ruth 1.1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the lands. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. As you've dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husbands. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should... Say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. My daughter's for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God to return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will, will I be buried May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. 
So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman, women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray together once more. Father, we do ask that you would help us, that you would shape us, you would form us, you would use this little book. You have purposes for your people in these four chapters, and would you make those known, even starting today. We pray in the strong name of Christ. Amen. So really, we have three scenes here in chapter one. We have the scene here with Naomi's trials, and then we have the scene with Ruth's faithful love, and then we have the scene going back to Bethlehem. So let's jump in here with the first scene, Naomi's trials. Here in the first five verses, let's read them again together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husbands. So we've got a sad start to the book of Ruth here with Naomi's trials. Author tells us that it takes place in the time of the judges. If you know your Bibles, the time of the judges was a time of chaos. It was the time where the motto among the people was, we're doing whatever we want. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It actually sounds really similar to today's day. It was chaotic. It was Hebrews gone wild. It was a time of idolatry, uncertainty, chaos, and it was about a 400-year period, this period of the judges, from the death of Joshua to about the time of Samuel, something like 1500 to 1100 B.C. And there's a famine in the land here, we read in verse 1. It should have been flowing with milk and honey, right? But instead, it's barren. Bethlehem, the word means house of bread, yet sadly and ironically, there is no bread. And so due to this famine, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, Elimelech takes his family from Bethlehem to Moab, about 30 miles away, 11, 12 day journey. Now, if we know our Bibles, we know this is a mistake. If we know anything about Moab, we know that Moab is a no-go. Moab was trouble from the very beginning. Some of you are reading Genesis right, t- right now as you're trekking through the Bible. Maybe you've read Genesis 19 recently. And this is where we learned the origin of the people of Moab and its gross. I love the realness of the Bible. It's not clean. And so here we have Lot and his two daughters. If you remember, they escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah. His wife got salty. didn't work out well for her. They go. The daughters are worried what's going to happen next. We're not going to have a husband. We're not going to have any, any children, any sons. Marriage was a big deal. Sons were a big deal in that day and age. And so while their dad, Lot, is passed out drunk, they both sleep with him and bear sons. And the firstborn son's name is Moab. It even sounds like it. Some of you know the Hebrew for father is Ab, Abba, Moab, from my father. 
And so right from the get-go, just gross, just nasty. This is a messed up people from the outset. And they grow and they end up settling east of the Dead Sea and they were constantly a real problem for the people of Israel. Read about it in the book of Numbers. They go to try to pass through, but King Balak curses them, hires Balaam to curse them and says they can't pass through. And then in Numbers 25, these Moabite women entice and seduce the Israelite men and cause them to commit sexual immorality and idolatry. And as a result, God sends a plague and kills 24,000 people in the book of Numbers because of Moab. They troubled Israel in Judges chapter 3, where they are called, quote, your enemies, the Moabites, end quote. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, no Ammonite, that was Lot's other son, or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Much later, Nehemiah would say the exact same thing. The Moabites were a nasty people pagan people. They would sacrifice infants to their false god, Chemosh. So in Isaiah 15 and 16, God curses the Moabites. He does the same thing in Jeremiah 48. He does the same thing in Ezekiel 25. He does the same thing in Amos chapter 2. Here's the point. Moab is no good. You don't take your family to Moab. They are the scum of the earth. They are anti-God. They are anti-Israel. Why would you go there? It's like an Aggie moving to Austin. But much, much worse. But Elimelech's hungry. Elimelech wants bread. And so he moves his family away from God's people, away from God's presence, to a pagan land. And remember, this is the old covenant. We're used to the new covenant where worship is all of life and we can meet anywhere. This is the old covenant where worship of the one true God happened at a particular place at a particular time with particular leaders, with a physical tabernacle. And so to leave the promised land is to leave God's presence and it is to leave God's people. This is bad leadership on Elimelech's part. He's leading his family away from the only church in existence. He's prioritizing the provision of bread over the presence of God. His name means my God is king, but he's violating his own name. Like a three-legged dog they can't see named Lucky. God is my king, yet I'm going to abandon him for the sake of bread. No. Sadly, dads often do this today. Provide for the family, but only in a financial way. Only for bread, not for the presence of God. I wonder, dads in the room, are you leading your family? Yes, win the bread, but are you leading your families spiritually? Are you having family worship regularly? Word, song, prayer. You praying with your wife? Are you praying for your wife? You praying with your kids? Are you praying for your kids? Are you realizing that you're leading them? Even in disobedience, your walk affects your family. So much more is caught than taught. Are you leading them toward the presence of God or away from the presence of God? Elimelech bells when the going gets tough. And maybe that's you. Have you ever turned on the Lord because things got hard? Trials will either drive us away from the Lord or draw us to the Lord. One of two ways. The same sun that hardens the clay will melt. Trials show us our true flavor, right? The flavor of the tea bag comes out when the heat gets turned up. Don't make the mistake of Elimelech. Things get tough and he bells. 
He chooses the broad way, the easy way. And notice it says they only intended to sojourn there. If your Bible is maybe a little less literal, it might use more of a a phrase for that word to say they only intended to stay for a little while. That's what the word means. But notice they end up staying a decade, and that's the way it always works. You know what? I'm going to leave the Lord. I'm going to pursue my own and just for a little bit. I'm just going to dabble in this sin, and then I'll return, and then... A day becomes a week, and a week becomes a month, and a month becomes a year, and a year becomes a decade, and your life is a mess. For some of you, you're here today, and the word of the Lord is, it's time to get out of Moab. Well, Elimelech's there, and he dies. He goes, he leads his family, and then he dies, and he leaves no plan for his ladies. Think it's a matter of biblical wisdom, guys, to provide for your family. Get a good, strong life insurance policy. Get your will in order. He doesn't leave him anything. He leaves no spiritual, no material provision for his family. So here's his wife, Naomi, left in a foreign land with two sons, again, Malon, which means sickly or frail, and Kilion, which means weak or failing, and they marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, and they should have known better. This was Israelite law one-on-one. Israelites do not marry non-Israelites. Let me read from the law here, Deuteronomy 7. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. You shall not. Well, Malon and Killian are like, well, hey, we live here. She's hot. So is hell. You shall not. It can't get any clearer. Much later, Ezra would say the same. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Of course, we know that old sickly and frail hadn't been raised in a godly way because their dad was Elimelech. He probably totally ignored, didn't even know about Deuteronomy 6. It said he was to teach the word. When he rose and when he sat and when he walked and when he laid down. And so they disregard the Lord's will and they marry these pagan women. Footnote here, young people, as you begin to date and as you begin to court, someone who's not following the Lord is not even up for discussion. Now, the new covenant, interracial marriage is totally fine. In fact, it's celebrated. Interfaith marriage, not. Very clear. You are only to marry in the Lord. Shall not be unequally yoked. It will only bring you down. You will not bring them up. Well, here they are doing what's convenient, and they avoid God's law and pursue pagans. Look at verse 4, Ruth chapter 1. These took Moabite wives, named the one was Orpah, named the other was Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So here's Naomi in a bad spot. Malon and Kilion now pass away, and since their names are sickly and spent, no surprise there. She's lost her husband. She's lost both sons. Here she is in a pagan land with two pagan daughter-in-law. Just imagine the pain of Naomi. Just picture her standing here at her third grave. Did she sob uncontrollably, or was she just numb? Maybe both. But along the way, the Lord is at work. Along the way, the Lord is at work in one of them. And that's where we see the next scene. And we see Ruth's faithful love. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord 
had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. God had not abandoned his people. They were in a famine, yes, but God would work through it. And then in his own timing, he visits his people. We may be tempted to think God has abandoned us because we're in some sort of famine, because we've experienced loss. We may not like our circumstances, but the call of Ruth is going to be trust the Lord. Don't let our hard circumstances drive us from him, but let them draw us nearer to him. He's not finished. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate you from his love. In fact, the hard things are a gift from him. So we sing, the flame won't hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. So Naomi decides to head back to Bethlehem. The house of bread is being restocked. Tries to release her two daughter-in-laws to go back home so they can start over. Naomi's got nothing for them. She wishes them God's favor. May he deal kindly with you. That word for kindly is hesed, really important Old Testament word. That refers to God's covenant faithfulness, his faithfulness to the promises, his mercy. And so she prays for them. Lord, may the God of Israel show you faithful, loyal love. And they all weep. They try to go. Try to go with her. But Naomi says, no, I can't raise up new husbands. I'm too old. I'm done. Just go home. You can't wait on me. You need to remarry. You need to start afresh. And she says, it's exceedingly bitter to me that the hand of the Lord is against me. By the way, this is terrible advice. She should be pleading with them to come. Come to the promised land. Join the people of God. Be near the presence of God. Naomi, though, has become short-sighted because of her trials. She has experienced significant trials. But she is wrongly interpreting the trials to mean God is against her. And oh, how wrong she is, as we'll see. And when we wrongly think that God is against us as the children of God, we tend to exaggerate our hopelessness. She's not thinking straight. As we're going to learn, she has forgot about two redeemers that could rescue her family. She had forgotten about. Oh, Naomi, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But when we're in pain, we're in suffering, sometimes we can't think, think straight spiritually. That's why it's so important to have a good biblical theology of suffering before we go into the trial. It's much too hard when we're in the midst of it. We, have, we need to have thought through the Bible beforehand. That way, when we're in the dark, we can believe what's true in the light. And when we're bitter toward God, notice we're in no position to give counsel to others. But she does. She tells them, go on back. Go back to your paganism. Go back to your false gods. And so they cried again. Orpah kisses her. She's gone. Takes the opportunist route. So she's bounces, but not Ruth. Ruth 
clung to Naomi. It's the same word in Genesis 2 where, where a husband, and, married, or a husband and, and wife are married and they leave and cleave to one another. Ruth clings to Naomi. Ruth ain't going nowhere. Look at verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God to return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Beautiful words here. Naomi urges Ruth to return. She says, no, I'm staying. She clings to her dear mother-in-law and these famous words that we all know so well. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Beautiful poetic structure. Folks often use these at wedding ceremonies, often engrave it on their wedding band. Maybe that's you and that's fine and well. But notice, I've never seen in a wedding ceremony the bride turn around to the mother-in-law and say, going with you (laughs) and that's the context here this is a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law Ruth says I'm with you I don't care about the consequences your peeps are my peeps your God is my God I'm not returning to false gods I'm with you your people your God till the end ride or die Ruth here is a living demonstration of God's covenant love for her. And she even invokes the judgment of God. If anything but death separates me. And so Naomi realizes, okay, she's resolved. Might as well not even talk with her. No use trying. Her commitment's so strong. I've got nothing else to say. Just silence due to her profound love. And just think what this meant for Ruth. This is leaving everything she knew. Much like Abraham and the call of God leaving her family, leaving her land. As far as she knows, she is committing her life to perpetual widowhood and childlessness, which was a huge sacrifice for the sake of her mother-in-law. And that day especially, marriage brought significant stability. And here she goes. I mean, just think about it. What would her eHarmony profile say? Poor, pagan, homeless, hungry, widow, Former enemy of Israel seeking an Israelite man. Small print, by the way, I have a bitter mother-in-law and she comes with the package. (laughs) New people, new customs, new language, but clearly it's not just for her mother-in-law. It's for God. In verse 17 here, Ruth uses the covenant name of God, the personal name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. In spite of the poor witness of her mother-in-law, she's committed herself to the one true God of Israel. Ruth had been converted from serving the God of Chemosh to serving Yahweh. By the way, this should encourage us. We all feel inadequate for the ministry God has called us to. And somehow, someway, the Lord used her bitter witness to bring to faith Ruth. Naomi's bitter, she gives bad advice, she seems half-hearted, yet God still uses her. I love the fact that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He does it every week. So Ruth's converted, she leaves it all behind. And sometimes that's what the call of God requires. Jesus spoke much the same in the gospel according to Luke chapter 14. He says, here's what we read. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to him, this is Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate 
his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The call of Christ is a call to leave everything behind. And our love for him and our devotion to him should make every other love and devotion look like hatred. Then he says in verse 33, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, Ruth has done that joyfully. She knows she has a new family awaiting. She is trusting. So that's Ruth's loyal love. Now we have the third scene, back to Bethlehem. Look at verse 19 of Ruth chapter 1. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem and When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Bethlehem was a little small, one-like town, maybe 200, 300 folks. Naomi comes home. The whole town is stirred. You small town folks know how that's like. All the ladies are talking. The guys don't care. They're off taking a nap or hunting or something. But the ladies are curious. Is this Naomi? Haven't seen her in years. They couldn't stalk her on Facebook. And her years had been hard years. Naomi had been weathered. And this would have been extremely uncomfortable for Naomi walking back home. She had left her people. She had left her God. She'd been in a pagan land. Now she's returning destitute without a husband, without sons, only this pagan daughter-in-law. Would have been uncomfortable for Ruth as well, though, right? An unclean Moabitess, an enemy of Israel. She's probably walking in behind Ruth as they come back to town. Behind Naomi, I mean. Look at verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So they ask Naomi, is this you? And they get an earful. Naomi means pleasant. Naomi means sweet. She says, you can't call me that anymore. Now my name is Mara, which means bitter. The Almighty has marred me. By the way, I knew a Mara in college. I wonder what the backstory is there. It means bitter. Naomi said, I used to be full, now I'm empty. Ruth has to be thinking, what am I, chopped liver? Again, if you wrongly think God is against you, you tend to exaggerate your hopelessness. You see the half-empty glass everywhere. Ruth in her life is anything but empty. But she's lost a God-centered perspective, and she's in a bad spot. All is yellow to the jaundiced eye. You know you're not in a good place when you walk into town, you take your little name tag, and you just put bitter with a frowny face. But she had just woken up from a 10-year nightmare. She's in a bad spot. But notice where she goes wrong. She literally bases her identity on her problems. She changes her name because of her circumstances. Oh, how easy it is for us to do this. Inform who we are based upon our problems. That will always lead to bitterness. If we base our identity who we are on anything but the Lord, it will lead to bitterness. But if we base our identity on the Lord, external circumstances can change. You know who remains the same? God does. So maybe you can relate. But here we know the end of the story. This is a book of hope. It's got a sad start, but we're going to see God is at work even in the famine. 
Naomi's short-sighted. She doesn't see that. She says, the Almighty's dealt very bitterly with me. She calls God the Almighty Shaddai. It's actually the title that Job uses most often in his book. Some 30 times he calls him the Almighty. Maybe you remember Job where we see how much he suffered and how he affirms that God, in fact, is sovereign in it. She's right in that. He is sovereign in this. As the prophet Isaiah would say, God says through the prophet Isaiah, I form lights and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is in control. Naomi knows that. Ruth knows that. But Naomi is interpreting her circumstances wrongly. Yes, he is in control, but he's not against us. He's in control and he's for us. He is good. Those are two truths we need to sleep on. It's like a warm pillow. He is in control and he's good. And she's lost sight of the latter. He works all things together for our good. This is a frowning providence. This is a bitter providence, but it will soon turn sweet. Much like vanilla extract by itself is bitter, but seen through with other ingredients, it yields the sweetness of a cake. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And he is the Almighty. We don't serve a puny God. We have a great God who is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is Almighty. And notice she calls him two things here. She calls him Yahweh, and she calls him Shaddai, the Almighty. And there's a lot of theology in those two titles for God. Again, because he is all-powerful, he is in control, but he's also merciful, and he's faithful to his promises. He is in control and he is good. And she's missing that. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Ruth is named 12 times in this little book and five times she's called Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. The author of the story does not want us to lose sight of her origin. She is from Moab. And providentially, they returned to Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the beginning of the barley harvest, somewhere around April, end of April, beginning of May. And it was basically a time of, of welfare if you were in Israel. It was a time when landowners would harvest wheat to make bread. And according to the law and God's generosity, they weren't allowed to go to the edges. And so these reapers would come along the edges, poor folks would come along and basically pick up the scraps along the edges that the reapers would leave. And then they would go behind them. And the reapers weren't allowed to go back and pick up what they missed. And so poor people would come behind them, and that's how they would have huge provision. They arrive with nothing, but what do you know? It's the time of the barley harvest. God's at work. He is providing for his people. He is executing his plan. The author wants us to turn the page. Why does he end here with this cliffhanger? He wants us to know that the story of redemption is about to unfold, and he gives us just a little foretaste here. It was the time of the barley harvest. They're on the verge of a physical and spiritual harvest. The stage is set now in Ruth with tragedy, and it's going to make way to triumph. Times were rough. Naomi had a tough lot. But one of the messages of Ruth is that God is at work even in the worst of times. And knowing the end of this book and the end of the story helps us see there is nothing insignificant in the book of Ruth. Flip over a couple pages to Ruth chapter 4. Spoiler alert, Ruth's going to get a man. 
named Boaz. They're going to marry. They're going to have a baby. Look at Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. That's our man we'll meet next week. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. David. The ultimate point, there's a lot of points in the book of Ruth, but the ultimate point of the book of Ruth is God's got a plan. God is bringing about the line of David, and he would promise David that David would have a son who would have a kingdom that would last forever. Times were rough. Naomi's in a rough spot, famine and loss three times over. But because Israel was disobedient, God sent a famine to Bethlehem. Because God sent a famine to the house of bread, because Elimelech was a poor leader, because of his sin, because her sons went astray, because they broke the law and married pagan women, because Naomi lost everything, because of Ruth's faithful, loyal love, because God decided to return and visit his people in Bethlehem, because it was the time of the barley harvest when they returned, Ruth would meet Boaz. They would get married. They would have a baby. David would come from their line, and God would promise David a son with an eternal kingdom. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. You see, we tend to think God is far from us in the midst of the famine, in the midst of the loss. When in a foreign land, when when we lose a loved one, when we feel empty, when we're lonely, when we're barren, we think God is absent. He's not. We just may be on the verge of a barley harvest. God will show himself faithful. He always does. That's who he is. Little does Naomi know that this trial, these trials would lead not only to her own redemption, but to the redemption of the entire world. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, trust the Lord. Even in the hard time, especially in the hard time, trust the Lord. He is in control, and he is good. In 1774, William Coper was this man. He came to Christ while in an insane asylum, struggled all his life with depression. He was actually underneath the Calvinist pastor, John Newton, whom we all know because he wrote Amazing Grace. Well, William Coper also wrote a hymn, and it really summarizes wonderfully well the book of Ruth. And I want to close by reading this hymn to you about God's control and his goodness. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break. And blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face.
His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Church, let's trust him for his grace.